All right, this is the third lesson on how to study the Bible. And for this one, uh, we're calling this one study tools and how to use them. We, of course, are teaching on how to study the Bible. So what we're studying is not the Bible. We're studying how to study the Bible. So all we're really doing in this month of Sunday schools is equipping you on what you need to be doing in your own life. So all we're doing right now is training you on how to go do something. So just, I say that to say, don't be deceived or don't deceive yourself. Don't think that like a farmer, this is you sitting in agricultural class and that instantly means you have a bumper crop at home. Because <laughs> you don't. The farmer going to learn new farming techniques at the local community college or the local university, that does not equate him sitting in the classroom learning on a better way to spray insecticide or pesticide or herbicide, that doesn't automatically give him a better crop at home. It gives him the knowledge and the skill set with which he can go home and, and develop a better crop. So just don't let this be information to you. Let this be useful information that you then apply. All right? Let's see what our lessons here have to say. Many tools are available to the Bible student. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Some you may use on a regular basis. Some you may only occasionally use. Some you may never use, and that's all right. It is important that you are familiar with these tools and how to use them. Let me say this. I've been a Bible student now 20 years, and I have probably delved into and dove into every tool or every style of tool that is available. And I, I must say, I don't think there's ever been any book as researched, as studied, as torn apart, as put back together as the Holy Bible. The whole libraries contain the volumes of papers and research and archaeology given to the Bible. And th this stuff is all available to us today. And uh, we'll cover the internet as our last subject this morning. But most of the stuff is even available on the internet. And so it should bring great confidence and great courage in you as a Christian and as a Bible student that whatever your question is, chances are 500 people have already written papers on it and getting their Masters of Divinity or their, or their uh, Doctrine of Divinity. Somebody's already asked the question. Somebody's already researched it. I, I, in my years of study, I have found papers and found subjects that I don't even knew were subjects. And people have split hairs and split theological doctrine over stuff I didn't even realize was debatable. Because that's how researched and studied the Bible has been, especially in the last thousand years. We did go through what was called the Dark Ages, where uh, the, the body of Christ seemingly just went numb and didn't do much, but uh, that's more than we can study this morning. I share all that to say, uh, if you've got a question on the Bible, somebody's already got their opinion and 20 scriptures to back it up, and there's already three or four counter opinions with 20 scriptures to back them up. And so it's been well-researched, but you have to be willing to find the tools. Now, and we'll cover this in the next lesson. There's a huge difference between Bible study and reading your Bible. Reading your Bible passes time. Bible study takes time. And we as Christians are called more to do than just read our Bible. Now, if you don't read your Bible at all, reading your Bible would be a wonderful place to start. But we've all read something and don't even realize what we just read. But now when you bog down settle down and study your Bible, there's no escaping or misunderstanding what you just read because you were actually studying your Bible. And for all of that, if, if I had a choice, if I had to choose between reading the Bible in a year or studying one 
chapter for a year, I would choose to study one chapter because you can read the Bible in a year and not even have a clue what you read, except you get the gold star that says, I read my Bible in a year. I'm all for reading the Bible in a year if that's what you want to do. But I promise you this, as a 20-year Bible student, you will get so much more from God and so much more out of the Bible if you were to rather choose studying one chapter for the whole year. Um, and as a personal testimony, I once spent eight months studying the book of Jude, which is only about 26 verses long. And truth be told, I only got to about verse 14 and spent eight months studying the first 14, 15 verses of Jude. And I have a ream of notes about half an inch thick from those eight months. I didn't read anything else. Well, I, I take that back. In studying the book of Job, uh, Jude, it took me to Numbers. It took me to Genesis. It took me to Exodus. It took me all over the Bible. But my main text of study was the book of Jude. I didn't study Matthew, Mark, or Luke that year or that, that eight months. I studied the book of Jude. And I actually have been recently teaching some of that. I studied that back in 2002 and 2003. And so that's coming out now 12, 13 years later. So I say all that to say, these tools are available not to look nice, bound in leather, sitting on a library somewhere. Uh, these tools are available not to be a pretty app you hardly click on on your phone. These tools are available so you can know your God more and be further convinced of the reality and the certainty of his holy word. And so it's a wonderful thing. So our first stu study tool that you've got to have, of course, is the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Let me insert my personal opinion here. I have all the Bible apps on my phone. I have all the translations on my phone. But to me, there's just something more noble in having an actual Bible. I'm not against apps or digital, but there's something more noble. There's something, I, I would almost dare say, more anointed in actually having a book in your hand. Uh, you learn it better when there's an actual book in your hand. If you just scroll with your thumb, you don't learn anything except for maybe the substance of the verse. And that's great, but you don't learn location. You don't learn its juxtaposition among other passages. It's just a linear column on a five-inch screen. Furthermore, I would make the argument, you don't have to agree with me at all on this. This is my opinion. The Bible says God writes with a pen on parchment in heaven. He writes on scrolls. It doesn't say he has a digital tablet. <laughs> I'll thank God for technology. Maybe the next thing will be a holographic display. You, and I, I, if you guys see me during service, if it looks like I'm texting, I'm not. I'm usually searching a scripture on, a, on my smartphone. Even sometimes my messages dissolve in between worship and preaching, and I'm trying to find that scripture the Lord's talking to me about, and I'll use this. But I will always, always preach from a Bible. Not against any of our guests that will come with a tablet or whatnot, but for me, my heart is, is set on the scroll. The Lord told the prophet, eat the scroll. <laughs> he didn't say munch the tablet. <laughs> That's a personal opinion. Bible. There's just something about having parchment. So you have to have a Bible. That is the most important thing, and you ought to be in it. I won't go so far as to say every day, but if it was important to you, you would somehow make it every day. Uh, they said of Smith Wigglesworth, he would never eat a meal without first pulling out his pocket New Testament and reading scripture because he believed that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he made it a point to eat the word of God before every meal, three meals a day. And if he was British, and he was, he probably had tea time twice a day, which meant he was probably pulling that Bible out twice more before he ate his little biscuits. They call them crumpets. 
You know, we Southerners call them biscuits. If you want to sound hoity-toity, you call it a crumpet, whatever that is. <laughs> All right, different translations. You have the King James, the New American Standard, the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the Amplified, etc. You got the Darby, you got the Coney Bear, you, you got all, there's, there's myriads of translations out there. And uh, you want to find one that works for you. Having different translations in your library can help you understand what is being communicated. But let me throw this out there. Uh, certain translations are called transliterations, and that means they have literally taken word for word and translated the Bible. That means every Greek word or every Hebrew word in the original text can be accounted for in the translation. Then you have what are called paraphrase Bibles. New Living Translation is a paraphrase. Uh, the Living Bible is a paraphrase. And what that means is you're not going to find every Greek word accounted for, nor will every English word in that verse or translation correspond to a Greek word from the original text. It's giving you the paraphrase, kind of giving you the, the heart of the verse. That's good and it's bad. Because that means the translator is presuming to know what the verse is trying to communicate, and they could be wrong. The worst paraphrase I ever found was John 1.1. John 1.1 in the King James says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. To give you an example of what a paraphrase is, I don't even remember the translation name. It should be in the dump. Hopefully it is. They, this paraphrase said, I saw it at, at Walmart back in college. I picked it up because I'd heard about it. I said, there's no way that's really what it says. So I found it at the Walmart spiritual section. I opened it up and it said, in the beginning was the word and the word moved into the neighborhood and lived with us. What? <laughs> That was the paraphrase translation, trying to be cool modern English. Well, great, but that's totally lost on someone in Portugal. That's totally lost on a British person. That's totally lost on the English-speaking Malaysians. So that's the danger of a paraphrase. But something like the New Living Translation I'll often use because it, gives you, it helps give you the idea. It's not always accurate. But usually it gives you a pretty good idea of what the verse is trying to communicate. The Amplified is a good mix between a paraphrase and a transliteration because it amplifies certain words and it shows you that it's been amplified by placing those in brackets or parentheses. Just on a side note, I have always studied and preached out of the King James. My wife studies out of the New King James. Probably the most accurate two translations for the New Testament are the King James and the New American Standard, the NAS. The NAS is probably heralded as the most accurate Greek translation and being true to the original text. The King James is, is maybe a secondary because the English language has evolved so much and you lose the, uh, the meaning of some words like charity. Uh, you don't understand what the word dissimulation means. What does dissimulation mean? Yeah, like Proverbs says, he that lies dissembles with his tongue. What is dissemble? Well, we would use the word disguise. So that's why it's often not considered the most accurate. But I will point out that the King James is the oldest and, and the least contested English translation. It's just been around for five, 600 years and nobody's found fault with it. Let me also add this, just as a side note of apologetics. When everybody, and I've been through the university, so I know how the idiots speak. They say, how can you believe a Bible that's been translated so many times? You don't even know. It was translated by a drunkard named King James. He was an adulterer. And I say, the more you speak, the dumber you sound. It shows your ignorance and how you've been indoctrinated by fools. 
Uh, first and foremost, the King James, King James, uh, he commissioned the interpretation, the translation. He didn't know those languages. He commissioned it to be done. So it wasn't his hand on it, just his commissioning. I, don't, I can't speak for his personal life. Secondly, his translation, as well as every modern translation, are taken from the original text, which still exists today. And we'll get into that when we talk about lexicons here in a moment. So yes, it's been translated a thousand times, but every translation has been taken from the original. It's not a translation of a translation of a translation whereby you would lose original intent or content. It all goes back. Even the Japanese Bibles are taken from the original Greek. Even the Portuguese Bibles are taken from the original Greek. And so I just throw all that out there. You could take a whole semester of classes on Bible translation. Anyway, hopefully that helps you a little bit. You do have to be careful of some more modern translations. They will purposely, and I can't understand why, except for perhaps some demonic conspiracy, they'll purposely leave out certain Greek words like Christ. Why would you leave Christ out? The NIV, which I study and use, is notorious for leaving Christ out of certain passages. Why? If the Greek says Christos, how can you omit Christos from your translation and use a personal pronoun like he? Except that maybe there's more power in Christos than the NIV liberal 60s translators wanted to acknowledge. And so I can do all things through him that strengthens me. All things through him, or how about we say Christ? What's the difference? Three letters? Just spell it out. C-H-R-I-S-T. So that's why I say that. Have all, have all of them in your, in your uh, library if you want, but be mindful. Compare them. Contrast them. Study Bibles. These are Bibles that have notes and commentaries built into them. Commentaries are another man's interpretation and may not always be accurate. Uh, and so to that end, depending on whose study Bible you've got, you're going to get their doctrinal slant on things. And that's good sometimes, and that's bad sometimes. Uh, so some of your more famous ones are the Schofield Study Bible, uh, published 100 or so years ago by Cyrus Schofield. I happened to, that was my first study Bible. Cyrus Schofield believed in a lot of wonderful doctrine. He was a cessationist, though, which means he believed the gifts of the Spirit were done away with. So when you study his notes on 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, you'll find he will nullify the gifts of the Spirit. Well, if you take his interpretation as gospel, you'll become a cessationist, too as in you'll believe the gifts have ceased. Uh, now, John MacArthur, MacArthur has a very popular study Bible. MacArthur is a Calvinist and a predestinationist. He has a lot of great things to stay in a study Bible, but you'll come away with the overall feeling of Calvinism and predestination, and that may not be your cup of tea. Uh, Dake, Dake probably has the most elaborate study Bible ever developed. He personally had over 100,000 man hours in his study Bible. If you figure the average American works 2,000 hours a year on their job, that meant he spent 50 years of his life working on his study Bible. The problem with Dake is he had some racial overtones. And so some, a, a hint of racism does come out in some of his notes. For that reason, a lot of uh, African-Americans despise his study Bible. Pastor Okwoko loved his study Bible. And I asked, in fact, that was Pastor Cuoco's Bible for 30 years was the Dake Study Bible. I bought him a new one because his other one was so marked up you couldn't read anything on it. And I said, how do you feel about his racial overtones being an African, a real African? He said, because, just because the man was ignorant on one point doesn't mean I should throw away everything else he had that was good. That's wisdom. Eat the straw, spit out the sticks. Eat the fish, spit out the bones. 
But he, he's also, Dake also had another issue with the hyper uh, trans, uh, what is it called? Um, Hyperliteration. He said to take everything literal in the Bible unless you could not otherwise do it. And that gives you some interpretive problems. And you got the Spirit-Filled Study Bible. You got the Prophecy Study Bibles. Tim LaHaye has a Prophecy Study Bible. They're out there. They're good things. They kind of help answer questions along the way. If you're reading a verse and you don't know what it means, you can look at a footnote, go to the bottom of the page or in the margin, and they'll kind of give you an idea about what that is and what that's talking about. Uh, also, many Bibles contain limited concordances and dictionaries and gazetteers, which is a fancy word for Bible map or just a map. In maps, believe it or not, understanding Bible geography can really help give you some understanding of what's going on. One of the, you know, knowing where the cave of Dulem is, knowing where the tribe of Judah is, knowing where the river Jordan is, that really helps you understand things. When the Bible says all of Israel went out to be baptized of John at the river Jordan, what in the world does that mean? Well, you look on the map and you realize they had to go 30 miles out of their way to a church service and they didn't have cars back then. We can't even get Christians to drive five minutes across town in their air-conditioned car to come to church in an air-conditioned building. But all of Israel marched out into the wilderness where there was nothing and no market stands and no hotels to hear John call them brood of vipers and wicked, perverse generation and then be dumped by him in the River Jordan. It lets you know that that generation was hungry for God. Also, one of my other favorite Bible stories is when the Bible says that Samson ripped the gates off of the city and carried them up hills on his shoulder to Hebron. If you understand geography, you know that he carried those gates 30 miles uphill. Hebron was not the same town. Hebron was the next town over, 30 miles away on the top of a mountain. So it kind of gives you a greater appreciation for what Samson was doing. Uh, many Bibles contain cross-referencing margins and footnotes. Make sure you know how to use these valuable tools. All right, that's probably enough time on all of that. Hopefully you, you do understand if your Bible has footnotes and margin notes, how to use those. Usually they'll have a superscript C, A, B, or one, two, and three. And you just go looking for that number somewhere else and it'll match and corresponding. Every Bible uses a different kind of example or a different kind of a typology in doing that. So everybody's a little bit different. But if you use a little bit of common sense, you should be able to figure out how to use your cross-referencing notes in your Bible. What I like about most of these study Bibles or even cross-reference margin Bibles is that you can find a verse and the verse might have a superscript letter F. You go to the margin, you look for F, and it'll give you seven other verses that say the same thing. And all of a sudden, you can use those seven other verses to begin what's called a topical Bible study. Uh, like maybe 1 Peter 2.24, by his stripes we were healed. It'll have a superscript letter A, B, or number one, two, or three. You find the margin, you find that superscript one, two, or three, and you'll find Isaiah 53 reference there. You'll find Matthew 8 reference there. You'll find who knows how many verses reference there, and you can begin a topical study on healing. This is in most people's Bibles, and you should be able to do it. Let, let me add this as it comes to me. If Sunday service, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, if this is the only time you study the Bible, you are of all Christians most weak. Jesus Christ wants every one of us to study the Bible for ourselves. Uh, I am not to be your sole food source when it comes to the word. I study the Bible not because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a Christian. And I began at the age of 18 with my Schofield study Bible devouring the word of God. And perhaps the only reason I am a preacher today is because I spent 20 years studying the Bible, even when I had no place to preach it. 
But I study the Bible because I'm hungry for God, not so I can have something to say. I study the Bible and I, I delve into its truths for I, so I can know my God. And you have the same God and you should want to know him as well. Therefore, you should study your Bible. And that's why we're teaching this, not so you can be impressed or amazed or wowed or have more notes for your three-ring binder, but so that you would actually know your God as well. So if this is the only time you open your Bible and you don't open the Bible Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you are, of all Christians, going to be a very weak Christian. And I, I've been a Bible student long enough now that I can talk with somebody for two or three minutes and tell you whether they're a Bible person or not. Because there's just something added to a man's or woman's life when they're a student of the word. There's a depth there. There's a richness there. There's this new spirit upon them that only comes by spending time in the word. All right, there's my exhortation. The next tool we want to look at is a concordance. And I brought a lot of these here with me. A concordance is perhaps the second most valuable stool, a study tool in a, in the, on your whole reference library. A concordance is a reference book that lists the scriptural addresses for all the words used in the Bible. This tool helps you locate any verse in the Bible if you know the word or words used in the verse. Now, obviously, with apps today, this guy here, this is a Strong's. This is the most famous. There's other concordances. This guy's just about obsolete in paper form because my app can do it a billionth of a second, uh, and it takes me maybe three or four minutes using a concordance. But what, this, what a concordance does is it helps you find verses, right? So you can remember that verse, for God so loved the world. Where is that? Where is that? Love the world, love the world. Well, you have a couple words you could go look up there. So we could turn here. It's laid out in dictionary form and you look for the word world and you could find all the different verses that the word world is using. I think most of us in here are familiar with how to use a concordance. So we find the word world. Let's see, works, Works, workmen, workmanship, no, worked, world, world. Well, that doesn't really help because it looks like there's 500 verses with the word world in there. Bummer. Let's see, I think it's New Testament. I think it's the Gospels. Let me look and, well, that's not good because the Gospel of John alone has 100 uses of the word world. I guess I'll start at John 1, 9. Every man that cometh into the world, that's not it. He was in the world, that's not it. And the world was made him, that's not it. Which taketh away the sin of the world, that's not it. For God so loved the world. There it is, John three sixteen. Now I have found my verse. What's so, this, this is called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, not because it's so big and heavy and it exhausts you to carry it around in your back pocket, but because he went so far, Strong did, he was a great theologian and Bible scholar, he went so far to tell you every verse that the word that is used in. Uh, how about in, the preposition, in? How about uh, the pronoun I? Every verse, the word I, not my seeing I, but I, me, myself, and I. And there's pages and pages and pages. Him. Uh, how about the, uh, the, what's it called? The word A. Yep, see also an. All right, we'll see an. And see also A. All right, we'll go back to C. <laughs> I don't know why Mr. Strong thought people would actually want to know where every use of the word A is, but that's why it's called exhaustive because there's not a single word not accounted for. Now, thank God we have it in app form now. And you can have apps on your phone and all you have to do is search, type the word in and hit search on your Bible app and it'll pull it up for you. This is so useful because it helps you find scriptures you're looking for. And that, of course, assumes you're in the Bible looking 
for scriptures. <laughs> By far, the most well-known concordance on the market is the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. It is set up for the King James Version of the Bible. It also contains an abbreviated lexicon for both the Greek and the Hebrew. All right, so let me move on for time's sake. That brings us to our third tool, and that is a lexicon. A lexicon is a dictionary for uh, foreign words or words of antiquity, most notably uh, ancient Greek, which is the Greek uh, koina, K-O-I-N-A. Koina is a ancient Greek. It is not what they still speak today in Greece. It would kind of be the equivalent of uh, Old English, but even more removed than that. And then, of course, you have Hebrew. Hebrew is still spoken today because Hebrew is God's language, and it is not dissolved in four or 5,000 years, which is quite amazing. Furthermore, there's no cussing in Hebrew. I wish Christians could learn that. I had a dream last night that I cussed, and I remember going, boy, you're dumb. And I woke up even nervous. Why did I cuss? In fact, I had cussed to my pastor in my dream. Not a Holy Spirit dream, obviously. I hope not anyway. What's the Lord trying to tell me? No, we don't get goofy with dreams around here. So a lexicon is a dictionary of Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, or other ancient languages. In the case of Bible lexicons, it is a dictionary defining only the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words used in the Bible. There would be no purpose in defining words that are not used in the Bible. So you're not going to find Portuguese in a Greek lexicon or a Bible lexicon, nor will you find Japanese or, uh, I don't know, Pig Latin or Lesotho or Swahili or Zulu. A lexicon separate from Strong's Concordance would be more thorough in its definitions and would be therefore more conducive to deeper insight into the original language. So I brought some of my Bible lexicons and again, some of this is, is higher or deeper level study. So let me show you the, the example here. Here's a giant lexicon I have called the Complete Bible Library. I'll go to James 121, our, our church's theme verse. Hopefully we're not boring you here. This is more like a classroom lecture this morning than Bible study, but uh, how do we study the Bible except we first teach you how to study the Bible? James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our soul. So I find the verse here, and uh, what's so awesome about this one, you can't see it. On the left side of this book here, this is like a kindergarten story time here. On this side, you have the verse, and you have every word in the verse pointed out with about 15 or so pieces of information about each word in that verse. On the right side here, you have a bit of a commentary and you have other translations juxtaposed. So like, for example, James 1.21, it says, wherefore, which apparently is the Greek word dio, uh, and it's written in Greek, and then it has this number 1346.1, which means a conjunction. Having laid aside, that's the Greek word apothemenio, and it has it written out in Greek, and it's 653.4. This is a verb, nominative, plural, masculine, part, aortis, middle tense. So it tells you exactly what kind of word, that form of the word is. Ha- having laid aside all, that's the Greek word parson, written in the Greek. That's an accusative singular feminine word. Uh, the number's 3820, and it is an adjective. Filthiness, that's the Greek word reparian, written in the Greek. It's number 4364.1. It's a noun accusative singular feminine. Uh, and abounding of wickedness, let's see, wickedness is kakias, 2520.2, noun gender singulative uh, feminine. So, uh, okay, that's five or six words right there. That lets you know the next time one of your liberal, heathen, pig, humanist, atheist, ignorant fool says, how can you trust the Bible? It's been translated so many times. We're studying the original coin of Greek here. Not only that, apparently somebody knows what they're talking about. 
Because everything I just read wasn't just Greek, it was all Greek. <laughs> but what I want to get to, let's find the word soul here. Gentleness, accept the implanted word, the being able to save the souls, your. So it gives it in the layout of the Greek language, which is not always the English structure. So let's find this word souls here. Sukas. That would be the word 5425.8, a noun, accusative, plural, feminine form. So let's go. This has all the definitions. So this is kind of like your typical hair product. You have to mix the two together to get the results you want. So this is the commentary and beginning part of your definitions. This is nothing but a lexicon here. What number did I say that would be? 5425.8. Let me find 5425. It's going to be near the end of the Greek language. Of the Greek alphabet, 54, 54, 54, 54, 54, 25. Did I say 25? Yes. Suke. All right. So here we go. Here's uh, 54, 25. Suke, a noun, translated soul, life, mind, heart, person, self. Cognates. It lists about 10 cognates. Anasukix, uh, anasuko, apopsuko, apopsukas, disukos, exuko, uposukio, isosukos, on down the line, synonyms. And then you have a bunch of other smarty pants that they reference. And then you have every use of it listed in the New Testament. So you got a bunch of uses of suko, probably looks like 100 or so. And then I've got a whole section on the classical Greek usage, the Septuagint Greek uh, usage, which is Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And then I've got about a whole two pages on just the definition of suke. So you understand what the word means and how it's used by Paul, how it was used by Christ, how it was used by the other apostle and epistle writers. This is a valuable tool when you want to understand what does it mean to save my soul? What is a soul? Soul like America means soul or maybe soul like Jesus Christ meant soul? Soul train soul? That kind of soul? Because sometimes when we read our, even our English modern translations, we're translating it in our mind in accordance with our modern translation. Charity never fails. You mean like the goodwill? You mean like the AIDS benefit? That kind of charity? Maybe I should look up what charity means so I know what Christ meant and not what my modern culture means. Now, now this shows you how thorough a, a, a lexicon is, a true lexicon, as compared to the Strong's, because if you were to come to the Strong's, I actually should know that number. I think it's 4,300 on Suko. Strong's will maybe have three lines of information on soul, whereas this has four pages on soul. Anyway, is it 4,300? Oh, no, I'm close. Prosuko, pro, there we go, 4,335. Yeah, there's only about three lines. Prosecco. 4337, there's about five lines of information. So whereas this has probably 200 definitions on two pages, this thing will spend 10 or 15 pages on one definition, depending on the word. That's why a lexicon, now you guys may never use this. That's why a lexicon is so needful. You may never get into this. You may never study any deeper than this. Some folks are so busy with life, they're just doing good to get five minutes of Bible time in a day. This kind of Bible study will take hours. And, and when I was a single man and even when before we had kids, it was easy for me to do that kind of thing. It was easy for me to spend three or four hours an evening in the word every night of the week. Now that I pastor full time, I'm still able to do that because that's what I can do as a pastor in my office, locked away with nobody bothering me, is open up all these things and study them. This is just a wealth of information available to you and I 
to know our God. I guarantee you there's not this much information on any other text out there because there's no life to be had in them. The wonderful thing about the word of God is that the deeper you study, the deeper you go in Christ. You can only study Homer's Odyssey so deep and then you hit the bottom. You can only study Beowulf so deep and then you hit the bottom. Those are some of the oldest known works. Uh, The Tale of Genji is the oldest novel in humanity. It's a Japanese story. You can only study and dissect the Tale of Genji so deep and then you hit the bottom. But the Bible, the deeper you study, the deeper you go in Christ. Uh, Let's see here. While Strong's will give you a paragraph of definitions, a thorough lexicon will be more likely to give you a page or two of definitions, etymology, and historical uses of the entry word. Let's see. Moving right along here. There's Keelan DeLeach. Haley's or Erdman's Bible Handbook. And these are things you can buy at the Christian bookstore. A lot of this stuff we have in our, our church library. This stuff, I got at Erdman's Bible Handbook here. Do I have a dictionary? Smith's Bible Dictionary. Uh, these Bible handbooks cons- include a concise Bible commentary, important discoveries in archaeology, related historical data, church history, and maps. It provides the historical background and setting for each book of the Bible. The handbook can be purchased for both the, new, uh, the King James and New International Version. Uh, this is just a useful little guy to have, and I hate to say it, but almost anymore. Like when I first wrote this curriculum, that we could pull out all these books and everybody be wowed. And now I can pull these books out and before I can explain them, you can have Google searched more than I could explain in five minutes. Back when there were books, <laughs> uh, this was a really good one to have. Let's say you're, you're studying David and Goliath and you want to understand what a sling is. Well, you know, we were taught slingshot. So you would go to this and you'd find Samuel, 1 Samuel, and you'd find David, and they'd probably have a picture of a a biblical sling and what that looked like. Or maybe a a picture of the biblical valley where David killed Goliath. And it would give you context. And it would make that story come more alive to you. Here's a whole section on different calendars compared, times and seasons uh, out of Genesis, different calendars. You have, you know, you have lunar calendars that the Jews run on, then you have uh, solar calendars that the rest of humanity runs on. And the differences are a couple days every year. And depending on how you want to do genealogy or chronology, do you count lunar calendar years or solar calendar years? So you have charts that show and explain that should you be interested. The calendar in ancient Israel. So there, there's all this stuff is available to you. Then you have these timelines and church uh, Old Testament history at a glance. This has all been researched by theologians and scholars and made available to the Christian hungry enough to actually get off of Facebook and study God. Okay. Here's a picture of the wall of Ezra the old wall that they built. Kind of neat to see what it looks like. You know, you come over to the New Testament, this thing will have pictures of the Wailing Wall. This will have pictures, let me come with the New Testament here. Here's a picture of uh, Ephesus, the ruins that are the Ephesian church today. All that's in modern day Turkey, the seven churches of the apocalypse. Here's a map of Paul's travels. New Testament quotations from the Old Testament. Here's a list of scriptures and verses that are quoted from the Old Testament. Here's a picture of the Colosseum in Rome where they martyred so many Christians by burning them alive or letting lions eat them or making them fight to the death. Uh, it's just rich. This stuff gives uh, other, this helps your Bible come alive to you. You get to see what the Middle East looks like. Because if you think about David running to a cave, you're going to think about East Tennessee caves. 
unless you can look at maybe what the cave of Dulem looks like and you realize, well, that looks more like Moab, Utah than Sparta caves. Uh, the Cedars of Lebanon, you mean like the state park down here in, in Cracker Barrel's back door? No, those, those cedar trees are baby trees over here. No, the Cedars of Lebanon, think about more like the fir trees out in the Redwood National Forest. See, it helps put things in perspective. It helps you see what Egypt looks like and, and what have you. So this is a very critical thing. All of this assumes you're hungry enough to look up from the Bible to ask questions. We'll cover questions or asking questions in our next lesson, but the way you study is by asking questions. If you never ask questions about the Bible, if you never ask, what does that mean? Why did they do that? Where is that located at? All you're gonna have are just words on a story, words on a page. All of these answer inquisitive questions. Remember the Bible says we're to have faith like a child. What's a child's most favorite question? Why, why, why? Jesus said, unless you're like this little child, you can't come to me. Because why, why, why? Why a stone? Why five stones? Why? Why that valley? Why? Why was everybody else afraid of Goliath? Why? Why? Where's Gath? He's a Gittite. What's a Gittite mean? What's the word Gittite mean? What's Goliath mean? What's that name mean? Why was he the champion? Why were there giants? Why, 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 why? See, the heathen accuse us of being closed-minded as Christians. I would say they're right. Because we never ask why. We're commanded of God to be inquisitive and open our mind. Lord, why? Not, not open the mind of heathenism or demonism. You know that. I know better than that. But open to, why'd you say it that way, Lord? Why, why did Jesus walk past this city? Why did Jesus curse that city? Why? Why did he walk in this gate and not the other three gates? Why? What, why did he walk in the sheep gate and not the water gate? What are the four, names of the four gates of Israel? Why? These books are written by theologians that are theologians because they have never stopped asking why. Not why is there a God, but why did you do it that way, God? Because the question first assumes you believe there is a God and every decision is calculated and every decision can be answered. That's why we ask the why. All right. So that's a great one. But just to be honest with you, I, I personally probably wouldn't turn to this. I just Google it myself. What does this area look like? Where's that city today? How many miles between Ur of the Chaldees? Where's Ur of the Chaldees? Is it next door to Babylon? If it's next door to Babylon, oh, now I wonder Ur of the Chaldees. Now I wonder the Lord told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees because Ur of the Chaldees is just south of Babylon. Babylon being where Nimrod set up demon worship. And no doubt, Abraham was probably influenced by the demon worship of Babylon, the capital city just north, which is today modern Baghdad. In the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley, the Fertile Crescent, the cradle of mankind. Why? And why does the Lord say it all starts in Babylon and it all ends in Babylon? Why? You mean we as America, we're nothing but a nation that will rise and fall? Why? These are the existential questions you ask, not what were they doing at dinner last night? Let me get on Facebook and check. <laughs> Lord, what a shallow life we live when it's Facebook. Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary will give you definitions and even pictures of objects found in the Bible that we, that we as modern day Christians may have no concept of. What is a chariot? A, a Bible dictionary will tell you and show you pictures and even give you Bible references to chariots. What's a cistern? What's a flesh hook? What's a tabernacle? What's a heart? H-A-R-T. Heart. As the heart panteth for the water, oh, it's a deer. 
I should learn better English. Most have pictures and descriptions to better illustrate the Bible narrative. And again, a lot of this um, can be replaced with internet searches, but we'll cover that in one moment. We're almost out of time. Commentaries. Lord, help us when it comes to the subject of commentaries. Commentaries are volumes. This is one of uh, probably 25. This is Kiel and Delich. This is one of the most well-quoted, well-discussed commentary out there. Anytime I do deep theological research, these guys are always quoted. And their work is always kind of stands alone as a precedent in the work on the Bible and modern interpretation. Commentaries are volumes of books in which theologians have given their interpretation and explanation for the entire Bible narrative. A commentary is capable of helping a Bible student, but it is also capable of hurting a Bible student. Much care should be taken when reading commentaries, for they are admittedly only man's opinion, conjecture, and understanding. I was recently doing heavy research on the Levitical covenant. Now, the covenant of Levi is only mentioned in Nehemiah, and so that that term, the covenant of Levi, it's only mentioned there, excuse me, Ezra. And so in doing that, you start studying a lot of theologians' work on the covenant of Levi. You find up, you hit numbers, you hit the book of Exodus, you hit the book of Deuteronomy. What is the covenant of Levi? Keel and Delich have their opinion on it. And so you have to figure out what's going on, what's being spoken of, and do we pull any doctrine from that or any precedent, allegory, or any kind of interpretation. The problem with books like this for the average Christian, myself included, and I always like to read from one of these, you know, and it's... Number one, you've got to understand Roman numerals, otherwise you won't have a clue where you're at. So this is uh, the, fir- the first book of Chronicles, chapter XXVI, <laughs> period, 1 through 19. Let's see, that's 26, 1 through 19. So with the Hebrew word, which I can't read in Hebrew, 2 Kings 23, verse 11, a word of uncertain meaning was the name of an outbuilding on the western side, the back of the outcourt of the temple by the door Shelecheth, which contained cells for the laying up of temple goods and furniture. A Hebrew word that's in Hebrew that I can't read. Botcher translates in the Latin, proben, S number 347, as a refuse door. See other notes on 2 Kings 23, number 11. Nothing more definite can be said of it unless we, t- we hold with Theneus, who was a theologian, on 2 Kings 23.11, that Ezekiel's temple is all its detail, a copy of the Solomonic temple, and use it in an unjustifiable way as a source of information as to the pre-exile temple. Three Hebrew words that I can't read because they're in Hebrew, as in Nehemiah 20, verse 24. Guard with and over against guard or other guard as in uh, compared with this footnote on this Hebrew word, verses 12 and chapter 25, verse 8. Birth you connects with Hosea uh, according to the Masoretic uh, punctuation and explains it thus. Because it was Hosea's duty to set guards before the western gate and la, 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 la. What did I just read there? I haven't got a clue. So moving right along to something that I can apply to my life today, I close Keel and Deleach and I find something else to teach on. <laughs> I, I have used this set of commentaries maybe five times in seven years of pastoring, usually when the Lord in my Bible study directs me to go read them. And so it becomes a supernatural thing. It becomes a leading of the Holy Spirit. And I find that then I can understand it. It's a supernatural thing. Other than that, my head spins like yours is. And that's why we have to be careful. We have these books here. These I took out of my library, put them in the church library. But even some of my study Bibles, I only read and look at when I'm studying something the Lord has directed me to study for you. And there's an anointing and a grace to go search that subject out. I can pick up a Dake study Bible and it make my head spin. 
And I'm like, all right, that's too much information. The answer's much simpler than what I'm looking at right now. And I say, well, all right, Dake, appreciate your work. You're wrong on that subject, moving right along. And I find something better. I pray in tongues and I get the answer of God. Amen. So, and my final sentence here is, many are written way beyond the understanding of most Christians. Obviously, because you have to know the whole body of theology they're digging from. Half those folks they were quoting You'd have to be a theologian with years and years of of theological uh, academic study to even understand the work that Theosis did on this subject or the work that Kiel did on this subject or the work that this ancient theologian or the work Eusebius did on this subject. It becomes a study all into its own. And at that point, we're not really being perfected as saints to win the lost, cast out devils, preach the gospel, and save mankind from the impending doom. At that point, it becomes esoteric knowledge, which means knowledge only open to those that are enlightened. And so be careful with commentaries. (laughs) Internet. All right, final subject. Hopefully you're learning something this morning. Much of Christendom's understanding Theology, archaeology, and commentary are now on, on uh, excuse me, are now online on countless websites. Students of the Word need only ask Google any question, and thousands of results can be found. One massive word of caution: obviously, just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. I currently maintain a blog, uh, which I can do for free. I can make up the goofiest stupidity put it out there cross-referencing a thousand scriptures and any Tom, Dick, or Harry can come along and be just as weird as me. So when I personally do Google research, I start looking at who's writing this paper. I don't look for blogs. I look for pastors writing sermons. I look for theologians. I look for papers that are quoting other theologians because at least they've done their research. And then when it's all said and done, I weigh it by the spirit of God. And I say, you know, that just doesn't sit well with me. Next article. But I honestly don't do a lot of internet research. And again, some of you and some folks listening to this sermon in the future, you would do good just to open your Bible four or five days a week, much less delve this deep. Some Christians would do really good to make sure they give the Bible as much time as they give Facebook. Till Facebook dies or we go home in the rapture, I will always preach, get off of Facebook with your life. Facebook will suck the soul out of you and you have nothing to show for your life. Facebook is a wonderful tool, but it can also be used to destroy your life. Facebook is a tool to preach the gospel. Facebook is a tool to keep up with people. Facebook was never meant to live your life on and Facebook was never meant to be a soul dumping puke zone where you fish for compliments and fish for attention. That was never the intent of Facebook. That's what it becomes because every tool will bring out the perversion in man's heart. Cars can be used for good or they can be used for drag racing and killing people. Knives can be used for prepping food or for mass murdering people. Facebook can be used to preach the gospel and to rally people behind a cause or it can be used to show how carnal and godless people really are. I like what one person put on Facebook. If you have a problem, complain to God, not Facebook. Ironic, it's on Facebook because the people puking up their puke on Facebook need to read it. There is a fruit called self-control and there is a fruit called peace and joy. You get those three working for you, it'll probably dry up your Facebook addiction. Not all addictions are chemical. Some of them are weird societal, social 
emotional. Be very careful when using the internet to study the Bible. Useful online tools and apps include Blue Letter Bible. I live by the internet website and the app Blue Letter Bible. Get on there and figure out how to use it. You're smart people. But I live by Blue Letter Bible. And then Version, of course, is the ministry out of um, the Midwest. And they have uh, every translation known to man available on uh, uversion.com. Now that you have tools, you need to study the Bible. Amen. So that concludes this uh, rather brief yet thorough examination of all the tools that are available to us. Delve into them and study them and, and learn them and develop. In the end, this is all done so you will have a walk with God and you will know the Bible. Magnify God's word and your problems will shrivel and die. Magnify your problems and God's word will shrivel and die in your life. Whatever you magnify becomes king. And whatever you focus on, you magnify. Amen. Father, I thank you for this Sunday school and for these series of lessons on how to study the Bible. We thank you for all the tools your countless servants over the millennia have compiled and put together. May we understand them. Anoint us to to use lexicons. Anoint us to use concordances. Anoint us to use Bible handbooks. Anoint us to be careful online. And anoint us to complain to you and not the imaginary friends we may have on Facebook. Help us, Lord, to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.